You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the Investors Agency and DBA. With over 20 years' experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands, of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hey guys, Bobby here from the Lazy Equity Podcast. I'm super excited to have Darren Venter on the show today. We're going to unpack some super, super interesting information and super topical information today, and we'll run through it all. But super excited to have Darren Venter, my business partner, in and, and uh, welcome, mate. Thank you, buddy. This is uh, uh, an exciting experience for us. Uh, first time you're on the podcast, eh? Well, separately. Well, yeah, independently rather. Yeah. Um, you know, we both had our fair, fair share of getting in front of other people, but I think this is a, a fun experience for us. Yeah, nice. And I think we're going to do it as in uh, normally it would be me, I guess, interviewing the guest and you are a special guest. I'm super excited to have you on. Very special. <laughs> Love it. But I think in this instance, we're going to look, we've got a series of questions we're going to ask, but it's it's going to be more conversational. Um, I'd love to get your opinion on a few different things because you do know the data back to front. You're, you're sort of very deep in the data and you're very um, knowledgeable on that side of things. So I think the listeners can can gain a, a lot of um, a lot of knowledge from listening to your input on that, and so can I. Thanks, mate. Yeah, looking forward to it. Um, you know, the data is the cracks of the business for us. So, you know, it's uh, hand in hand with all the experience and all the personal touches that we put into it for our clients. It makes it a good experience. But uh, let's not plug the business too much. Let's get into it. <laughs> Perfect, mate. So let's start with, um, why don't you tell the listeners very briefly a little bit about yourself so in just, just you know, a couple of minutes, a little bit about who you are. My name is Darren Fenter. I am originally from South Africa, came over to Australia in 2008. The family in South Africa is still there, unfortunately. Sad to um, not get back, especially with the COVID instances in the last couple of years that we've had to face through there. So I haven't seen them in a couple of years. But on the family side of things, dad was always an an aspiring architect, always wanted to be one of those. So dad and I used to sit down and draft up houses every weekend. Is that where your design background came from? Pretty much, yeah. Ah, interesting. I never knew uh, that. I think it's actually a bit of a in an, a, a bit of a combination with mom and dad, mom and dad. Actually, mom's got the creative side, but mom was actually in property as well. So mom was a managing uh, a leasing agent for many, many, many years in South Africa. Her father, or sorry, her uncle was one of the biggest real estate agency owners in South Africa, an agency called Adlon Property, which was one of the biggest sort of uh, agencies back in the day. Wow. And I think that sort of installed a lot of interest within our family to get into property. And my brother's an avid investor as well. And uh, yeah, so that's where we are kind of today um, in terms of the property side of things. I do come from a background of design, like you say, but I think that's a that side of design was also from the jewelry industry, which is a very different industry back in the day. So, you know, focusing on property these days, been in the industry for the last several years now, really enjoying it, love it and uh, love what we do for our clients as well as ourselves. Nice, nice, mate. Thanks for that. Thanks for that intro. I think it's super impressive, or, or I guess like, um, uh, like it's super impressive, but also like I, I don't think I'd be able to do it in a sense that you leaving all your family on your own and going to the other side of the world, literally, to chase, I guess, a better future or a better life. And 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 yeah, it is something that that is you know something that I look look up to because I don't think I would have been able to do it. Yeah, look, I mean, it's not something that is you know, easy to decide on. And then it's unfortunate because I do miss my niece, don't get to see her, don't get to see the family. But I did leave South Africa quite young. I think I was at the age of 21 or 22 and have been away for the last, oh, 
however long it's been. Uh, I came into Australia in 2008 when I was 23 or 24. That was when you had a two-year two year partying in, in the Cayman Islands. In the Cayman Islands, <laughs> yeah. Good, good time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, so I, I left uh, South Africa quite young, went travelling for a while, then came through to um, Australia after not wanting to head back to South Africa just because I saw what else was out there at the moment and and uh, decided that I wanted to keep on exploring that and ended up in Australia and no regrets. Nice. Well, look, I'm, I'm sure your parents and, and your family will be super proud on what you've been able to achieve here. So, so well done. Um, Thank you, mate. Cool. So let's, uh, let's touch on, I know it's sort of front of mind at the moment with, with the media shift changing from, I guess, booming and, and record highs and, 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 you know, the Australian property market is, is, is the strongest it's ever been. And all of a sudden within a few months, we see this happen every couple of years, but all of a sudden within a few months, we're seeing boom and bust, doom and gloom, interest rate rises. And, and let's touch on, I guess, what are you seeing in different markets around the country? Cause the media does have a tendency to just mm -hmm. classify Australian property market as Sydney or Melbourne, which are generally the two biggest property markets. But let's touch on what we're seeing, being on the ground every day in different markets. Let's just touch on it on a macro level, state to state. Yeah. Well, I think even before we get to that, just the, the concept of sen sentiment within markets shifts so much. You know, sentiment is a massive decider for people. And uh, when we do see the media report on major markets like you're talking about, and if, if you even if you want to consider a major market as as Melbourne or Sydney, as you know, we don't really because we consider those as states. And when the media starts to talk as a market as in Sydney or as in Melbourne, the reality of it is that there are thousands of markets around Australia. Hundreds of them are in each state, and or if thousands of them are within states, those divided up. But if you look at the the markets where we're buying in, they they decided by suburb, as you know. And so when the media does talk about the markets which are shifting and they're talking about major metropolitan which is shifting, especially in the last of Victoria and, and uh, New South Wales where debt has just become enormous. And so the support for buying property within these areas is reported on because that's where the major amounts of the population are focused on looking because that's where they live and people are comfortable at looking at markets where they live or where it's close to. So that sentiment which is created in that discussion from the media is kind of hindered a bit where, you know, the, the understanding of the market uh, as such being difficult to get into is potentially true in those, you know, macro levels. But when we're looking at the micro levels in all the suburbs that we're working in, they are definitely accept, uh, accessible. Hundred percent. That's right. So we need, let's touch, and we'll touch on, I guess, entry points in 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 some of the markets that that you can buy in, which are, which are very great, like which are very strong markets. But we'll touch on that a little bit later. But what do we? So I guess everyone knows what the sentiment is at the moment for Sydney and Melbourne, mm. or New South Wales and Victoria. And let's not forget, New South Wales and Victoria has just done ten to fifteen years of a hundred to one hundred and fifty percent growth. Yeah. So let's not forget we're coming off that that many consecutive years of growth and with all investments there's going to be increases stagnations corrections this is part of the process but let's touch on i guess the other states which which the media very rarely talks about and the states that we're most active active in at the moment and 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 why don't we why don't you touch on a little bit about what we're seeing there yeah well i mean so actually going on to that 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 point if we take a look at the major states which are incurring all these debts which is you know mostly Victoria and New South Wales, 
or Victoria and Sydney, let's put it that way rather. Those markets also create other markets of attraction and that movement is called exodus. So when you see a market which is rising up in value too much, those populations inside those areas become, basically they get outpriced by their own market. It's unaffordable for them to live there. So those people need to find more markets. That's called an exodus movement. Those people then need to find affordability and affordability is currently sitting in other states. Other states such as WA, uh, South Australia is becoming less attainable as we know. Um, it's still attainable and it still does hold a relatively good debt profile and a good portion of affordability, but it is reaching that level. Yeah. But we are still seeing other states such as uh, Queensland and, and WA hold a lot more attraction to the exodus movement. So those are the markets which are becoming or rather holding more affordable profiles. And because of that, those markets are then obviously attracting the population which can be a, which can afford to live in those areas. As long as the economic profiles of those property markets are supporting the populations that need to live there. And that comes in light of the amount of employment which is being put into those markets, which is being supported by infrastructure spent through the government as well as private sector. So if we understand how that all correlates, there's a lot of markets out there and they are constantly moving. While these markets are available and accessible that I'm talking about in WA and, and Queensland and some of um, South Australia, uh, as well as some Tassie, uh, you know, if you want to go up into Northern Territory as well, there's a couple that are accessible there, uh, ACT too. But, uh, you know, once those markets catch the traction from this exodus movement, those markets will also then go up in value and then also become unattainable. And then eventually the corrections will happen. Yeah. And that's basically the movement that we see constantly. And, and you touched on exodus and this is something that happens all the time. Obviously COVID has exacerbated that and, and sped up that process essentially in terms of exodus to, to other you know, lifestyle states or whatnot. But what people don't realize is this was happening before COVID and it happens every time a market becomes unaffordable. Uh, if you sort of take it down a, a one level smaller, you know, from Sydney becomes unaffordable, people move to Central Coast. Central Coast becomes unaffordable, people move to different areas. This yeah. is on a macro level. So COVID has just sped that up. But this is what happens in, in all states all the time, essentially, right? Absolutely. It's the way that the markets move. It's, it's the basics of supply and demand versus um, affordability. So I guess... I guess another thing in terms of, in terms of, I guess, that mass exodus out of different states and whatnot, that's another reason why out of the last 40 years, there has always been one capital city that's been going through a boom. Now, part of that has been because of infrastructure spend and, and population movement within an area, but that population movement within an area comes from other states becoming unaffordable. So Sydney and Melbourne become unaffordable. Then there's a mass exodus to Queensland. Queensland becomes unaffordable. Those people will move to Adelaide. Adelaide becomes unaffordable. Those people move to Perth. At the end of the day, yeah. housing affordability is the number one thing for every single person. And you need shelter. You need to have um, you know shelter and a roof over your head. So if you do need to move states in order to do so, this is what people do. And that's why you've always got different booming markets around the country. Absolutely. But I just want to point out to what you've said there. So you actually mentioned the capital cities of those states. You were talking about Brisbane. You were talking about Perth. You were talking about Adelaide. Now, Again, those are markets, 100%, yes, they are, but they're major, they're major markets, they're major metro markets. Even when those areas do become unaffordable and people move around the country to look for new metro locations, likewise, do they also move internally 
uh, in, interstate and uh, they actually stay within the state, but they still move into other markets. And those markets are then the traction gainers. 100%. And those are the ones that actually benefit then as well. And, th and that's kind of what we've seen, especially as you said, with uh, moving from Sydney up to the central coast and then central coast up to the northern rivers of New South Wales. And, and then also those northern rivers going into the southeast Queensland sections as well. And then even going up into the mid-Queensland belt where we see the Apoon markets all the way down to Harvey Bay sort of capitalizing and benefiting off that movement. It's literally the ripple effect that we see, all the flanking markets that we talk about. Yeah, 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 no, 100%. So I guess um, I guess in terms of... In terms of markets, I think I think what we want to do for all you guys listening, we just want to give some clarity that that you are going to start seeing, and if you haven't already, um, doom and gloom, and the market is correcting. What we what we got what we want you guys to understand is there are markets within markets, and as I mentioned, over the last forty years, there has always been a capital city going through a boom, uh, even when interest rates are going up. What you guys essentially should be doing. Uh, if you're still looking to invest. And what we find is the mum and dad investors generally get spooked by the media, doom and gloom, but all your experienced investors or educated investors are the ones that take advantage of, of, of really good opportunities. But essentially what you should be doing is buying in areas where debt levels are low, buying in areas where there is still affordability, buying in areas where population net migration is in the green. And, and, and this is what you can do to essentially minimise the, the, the impact that increase in interest rates will have because naturally there is going to be a, a a correction in the areas where debt levels are highest or in the areas where yields are at one or two percent some of the markets we're buying in we're getting an eight or nine percent yield so even with a two and a half percent interest rate which they've said that is going to happen as of inflation inflation rate which they meant um just announced yesterday uh they've said they might go to two and a half percent increase in interest rates if you're still getting an eight or a nine percent rental yield uh, just to clarify, yesterday would be the 27th of April because this is coming out in the future. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Thanks, Daz. So, yeah, as of the 27th of April, um, they they announced that the government announced that inflation is 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 sitting at 5.5%, I think, which is slightly higher than what they were predicting. Interest rates, instead of 2% increase, they might have to increase by 2.5%. If you're still getting a 7 8 or 9% rental yield, you're still going to be positively geared in these markets. And that's why these markets aren't going to see as much of an impact as the markets which are seeing high debt levels and low yields. Absolutely. And I'm going to put a, a hot key note on that. With this interest rate rise, and I think this is something that a lot of investors need to start looking out for, is because of the interest rate rise, all the savvy investors inside the positively gearing format of buying property are going to find those markets which were purchasing these 6 7 8% yielding assets for the reason to recover those interest rate rises. In that effect, because typically what we've seen, and, and you know this and we work with this every day, but we typically see the lower end of the price range yielding a lot higher than the higher end of the price range. So, you know, we shop pretty much between about $300,000 to $650,000. At that $300,000 mark, you can pretty much get 6 to 8% yield quite achievably. But once you get up to that five or $600,000 mark, that yield sort of falls off to around, you know, 4.5 to 5.5 mark. Now, with that, I'm going to call it now. He's doing it. <laughs> it's on. It's going to be on. Uh, it's going to be recorded and it's going to be live. So <laughs> well, let's, let's have a look what happens in the next six months. But uh, I'm making a prediction on this, that the, the markets which are now going to be accessible to start achieving more equity and as well as the cash flow is going to be those more 
those higher cash flow producing markets where is typically, yes, those markets would produce more cash flow at that sort of six, seven, eight percent that I was talking about. They generally, you know, they turn over a slower equity in comparison to the higher price point markets where lower price points are doing about 10% at the moment uh, and higher price, 10 to 15% and higher price points are doing around 25 to 30% in some of the markets we're shopping in. Some markets 40. Some markets 40. <laughs> but what I'm saying is these lower price point markets will catch the traction of the savvy investors that are needing to recover those interest rate rises, which will push a lot of investor interest into these lower price point markets, which would typically generally return well on yield, but they're also now going to create a lot of demand by the amount of investors going into them and therefore drive initial imminent growth spike. So I would say watch those markets out for the next six months and get in now while they're positively geared take advantage of that imminent growth spike that's predicted to come within six to nine months time. That's a really good point you make because we've had conversations with clients over the past month or two where their initial brief was neutrally geared in maybe a more outer metro market, whatever it might be. And since the media articles have come out, interest rates have started increasing, they've actually adjusted their brief with us. They've actually said, you know what, we actually want to go into a positively geared market in a regional market, you know, with a diverse economy. So you actually make a really good point that that's actually, we've been seeing it firsthand on the ground, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess we are going to see it firsthand, so we can make those calls <laughs> fairly, fairly more conservatively, I think, I feel, than others. Yeah, no, no, 100%, mate. So why don't we, why don't we touch a little bit about why don't you give your thoughts about how investors can select markets? We sort of touched on which markets we think are going to, to benefit, but let's talk about how investors uh, can essentially select select their markets and uh, and, and what, sort of, what, what factors do they need to look into in order to be selecting different markets around the country? Let's talk about it on a more macro level first or a more long-term level first, as in things like infrastructure and that sort of stuff. And then let's touch on short-term triggers. So I'm talking about, you know, things that we can see that are having an impact right now. Like if you see days on market increase, yeah. you know what's going to... So let's talk about the macro stuff first, the more long-lasting or, or a medium to long-term factors. And then we can touch on the, the immediate factors that investors can look into. Okay. So always what we'd like to see is, you know, one of the biggest indicators of healthy economy is support by the government. And if we can see a bunch of projects going into the government, not even just the government, but private sector too, is always a, a very good uh, indicator. If we can see that there's a large amount of infrastructure going into an area where there's uh, where it's creating employment, not necessarily just for the employment of the construction of the of the uh, infrastructure itself, but also creating jobs after that. So, elaborate on that a little bit. What do you mean? Yeah. So, obviously, I know I know what you're talking about here, but for the listeners, yeah. why don't you elaborate on the two different types of infrastructure projects and why it's so important to look at both aspects? Mm. Cool. So. The, the initial growth is obviously causing interest for uh, employment to go into those areas to create the infrastructure to build the, those buildings which will eventually then employ staff which will grow the economy. There's two different drivers as you've got here. When you're looking at mass production markets or mass uh, economic uh, developments where you, we're looking for hundreds of thousands of staffing to be able to develop a, a massive complex or a huge building. Like a big university, big, big hospital. University, um, hospitals, yeah. And you know, essentially a hospital is not just the, the staff that are needed, to, or it's not just the builders that are needed to build those properties. It's also the transport that needs to be upgraded to be able to produce uh, the trans transfer of goods into that area because generally, you know, there's road closures. Road closures need traffic control. Traffic control generally 
you know, that's employment of another sort as well. It's not just the building. It's, there's a lot of due diligence and a lot of administrative work behind all that stuff other than just the actual construction. Yeah. So yes, there might be an infrastructure spend of, you know, let's call it uh, $500 million for a project or, or $10 million for a project, whatever it is, however big it is. But that's the project spend. That's not actually necessarily always considered inside the actual finances of the community spend as well as the, uh, the council spend. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. When they when they announce a spend for an infrastructure project, it's directly related to that infrastructure project. That's not they're not talking about that the massive ripple effect it has on yeah. all the other factors that are that are needed to support yeah. that that project. Yeah, uh, and there's a couple of websites that you can do to find that sort of stuff. Yeah, one of them, the Urban Developer, right? Yeah, Urban Developer is a, a great resource that, I mean, you and I used to use quite often. Yeah. Um, I highly advise to the listeners to just add, go into urbandeveloper.com.au. I think it's .com or .com.au, I'm not too sure. .com. But uh, subscribe to their mailing list. And um, I think you can filter areas as well now. Uh, and I think you can do it by residential and commercial and all that sort of stuff. But basically what it does is it gives you, you know, updates of what projects are going into what areas and gives you a bit of an understanding of the landscape. It doesn't necessarily tell you too much about what's going exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but there's good information around expenditure and employment numbers and all that sort of stuff. But uh, it's just really good to understand the landscape that you could potentially want to be interested in investing in. Once you see some finance going into these sectors, uh, that's a good indicator. So that'll probably be number one is to, to basically qualify the indicators, uh, and that would be by expenditure. Another thing that we like to look for, um, or that any typical investor could look for is, uh, and this is quite a simple one, go onto real estate or, or domain and uh, just type in, go into those areas where you can see that spend and then go and have a look at the median prices of those suburbs. A good indicator is to try and target the lesser expensive suburb. And this pretty much goes in line with what we were talking about earlier in terms of affordability, because you need to find the affordable suburbs. So if your rent is 30% of your household income, then that market is considered an affordable market. Anything more than that, and it becomes considered unaffordable. So if you're able to find a suburb uh, within that area where you can see those developments that is on the more affordable scale, then that's going to be your targeting suburb because essentially what we talk about or what we spoke about earlier, that exodus trend and the ripple effect or the flanking effect is going to eventually flow into those markets as long as the amenity profile is similar. Yeah. And that's that comes in line of uh, the types of schools or the types of hospitals that are in that area or the types of shops, the types of retail, industrial, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, so and I guess where you guys can find that as well in terms of um, affordability for an area or, the, or if someone can afford if 30% of their household income is on rent or mortgage or whatnot, you can, so we just pay for this data now in, at our stage in our careers because we're doing so many transactions. It's just easier to pay for the data and get given to us. However, you can find this information for free on, and I'm not sure how updated this information is, but on QuickStats, you can find it. They're going to be using the last census which is 2016, is that right? Yeah, that's still sitting at 2016. We're expecting the new census reports to come out by hopefully August, September this year. If anything goes to plan, it'll be by then. Yeah, cool. And sorry, we're going to say something else, well? No, it's um, nah. <laughs> okay, cool. So, quick stats. You can find some of that information. Microburbs as well. You can find some of that information. I don't know how up to date it is. Again, because we don't use, 
We don't use this information ourselves because we pay for it because we need updated information all the time. However, for you guys listening, if you're doing one transaction for yourself personally, these are the kinds of websites that can certainly help you. Yeah, Microbevs is a good resource. I think um, especially the map function, it's quite easy to read. Yeah. Nice and clickable. But if you do want some deep diving information and, and data and get all nerdy like us, then <laughs> definitely jump onto Quick Stats. It gives you a heap of information about affordability within markets and it gives you a really good rundown in comparison to the rest of the nation and the rest of the markets around that actual suburb itself. Okay, cool. So so just to touch on infrastructure projects, one of the big things that, that you guys should really be looking into, infrastructure spend or infrastructure projects, as Daz mentioned, there are two different types of infrastructure projects. One kind is the infrastructure projects that creates the jobs while that project is being created. Then there is another infrastructure projects which creates long-term, long-lasting jobs such as a hospital or university. So different examples would be a freeway or a highway upgrade. That's going to create jobs while it's being done. But as soon as that project is done, there will be lots of workers that will be leaving that area. So you need to be mindful of that. But if you do get infrastructure projects for jobs which are adding amenities within an area then those are the sort of things that will create long-lasting jobs. So they're the sort of things you want to look into when um, when looking at uh, infrastructure projects. As we mentioned, in terms of affordability, there are those sites that we touched on. I also just want to touch on that as well because the even infrastructure projects are expensive and, and they can employ a lot of people to construct and a lot of people to maintain them like mines. But the difference about mining towns is why, and, and this is typically why we stop well, why we wouldn't go into those markets is because, yes, there's a lot of expenditure going into the uh, construction. Yes, there's a lot of expenditure and population which are working in the operations of those mines as well. But they are single economic in, uh, environments where you don't have the support of the rest of the community coming into play in those environments. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're looking at a mine, there is typically um, the staffing which live there. They don't necessarily have families. When you're looking at hospitals and schools and the community centers and shopping malls and retail outlets and industrial zones, they typically have families that move over with them. Those families, uh, be it maybe, let's say, the partner, the husband has a job, the wife's going to need a job. Potentially they have a kid, that kid's going to need a school. That kid will also get sick and the kid needs a hospital. This is basically what we see is that Whatever that infrastructure is, it has to support a wider economy as well, not just the industrial, uh, not just the individual industry, which is in that area. Yeah. So So look for more than the the sole industrial, uh, the sole industry that's, that's creating and look beyond that. 100%. So so generally when we're looking in an area, we're looking at uh, in areas which have sort of three or four industries driving that economy. So, you know, you want your health, you want your education, agriculture is great. If it's got military, great. You want to try, would you sort of say four or five industries within that area? Do you think that is sort of what people should be aiming for? I think four is a safe one. Um, As long as you can get uh, those four bolstered at a very equal sort of return, you don't want to really see agriculture sitting at 90% and then the other other three at, at sort of, you know, Six or five percent, whatever. And is that that's a really good point you make? Is that information available on Quick Stats? It is, yeah. So you can go on Quick Stats, have a look at uh, what's driving those economies. It's the top five performers, and you can actually have a look at the percentage returns of those economies. Great. So you pretty much want a balanced, diverse economy within an area. Correct. Cool. So, so let's touch on and, and look. These aren't the only things that we're, that investors that you guys should look at when when selecting an area. But you know, we could we could be here for days talking about everything you should look at. But these are some of the long term. 
these are some of the things that have an impact in the long term for house prices and and it's going to create stability and long-term growth and long-term low vacancy rates for you depending on i guess the development appetite of the local council but what are some data points that that our listeners can look into in order to see and i think this is really relevant with today's market and we just touched on different markets right so what are some data points that buyers can look into if they're looking to purchase in an area as to how that's how that market is currently performing now i know the data is generally one or two months lagged mm-hmm. but buyers can still do their own on the ground research which which means you don't need to need to even rely on rp data or stuff like that you can do your own you can be on the ground calling agents to do your own research for several months what are some of these I guess, data points that can really help our listeners when, when they want to select an area. Yeah, you're right. Um, obviously, you can pay for it and you can get it easy at hand. Um, and even so, still, we do that and it's lagged. But yeah, being on the ground and actually experiencing it firsthand is definitely going to give you the upper edge. The Obviously, the first indicator for any market is obviously the growth. You obviously want to see that there's a large amount of growth going into that area, but you need to actually qualify because, yes, growth is good and you know where it's come from and you know where it's at, but that doesn't necessarily let you know where it's, heading towards where it's where it's yeah exactly so so you can yeah. you, if you look at the data you can see what the growth has been where it is now but um but what's really important is where it's where it, you know the, the future growth of that same area right exactly yeah and that comes down to the health criteria or health statistics of that zone or that market but also obviously what we spoke about in terms of the employment and population introduction expectations and all that sort of stuff over the forecast periods but as a as some indicators of of the the good points of data to look at you know you could look at things like the the median vendor discounting inside a market it gives you a really good understanding as to how strong the seller which or rather what type of a market it is if it's more favored within the sellers or the buyers market if you can see the discounting ratio inside those markets reducing and if you know that you potentially you know five six months ago we were able to get around five or six or seven percent off the purchase price and now it's sitting at under three percent or under two percent then you know it's going to be a seller's market. There's a lot of seller interest inside that market. In some instances, it's a lot of buyer interest inside. Sorry, that market. a lot of buyer interest, but seller support so, yeah. inside that market. So sellers will have the upper hand. Yeah, and um, that's essentially because there is more. If you if you if you see um, the vendor discount decreasing, there is essentially more competition, more competition, more demand, and there is supply. Sellers are in there. Sellers are in the prime seat to get the uh, get the asking price on what they're after, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another really good one, obviously, is we, we spoke about growth there. But if you take it that, that growth and you correlate it to the rental return, and this is quite easy to do on your own if you are looking in a market for, let's say, a month or two months. And if you do see imminent growth trends inside that market where you know that the prices are going up over the next or have been going up over the last three or so months, if you take a look at the price of those uh, properties selling three months ago versus the rent of those properties three months ago, and you calculate that to today, you can actually work out what the yield trend is. And the yield trend is basically um, the amount of, obviously, as as some of you may or may not know, the yield is essentially the, the amount of cash which is being produced by the rental income of that property in comparison to the repayments which will afford that property. So it's how much it pays compared to uh, the, the rent being produced or how much it's, uh, it costs in comparison to the rent being produced. Cost to hold on to, Correct. right? Because the value of the properties 
are essentially increasing at a rate at which the value of rents are not. Now, the rent might still be increasing, yeah. but it's just that the value of properties are increasing at a faster rate, and that means those yields start dropping down. Yeah, and this is a, a big misunderstanding, is that when people see that the yield is dropping down... We see this all the time, yeah. It's actually a good sign as long as the markets... Is, if, if you can see the yield going down and the rental increase going up, you know that that market is growing at a faster performance on market growth on equity than it is on rental return. But if you're still seeing the rent return going up, then you know you're in a good market because essentially if the rent's going up and the yield's going down, that means the market equity is growing at a faster pace. Yeah, and we see it all the time where clients, we present a property to them and when we present a market, we give them all this information and they see the yield going down and, and they look at it and they freak out and they say, oh, the yield's going down, what's mm-hmm. going on? Um, am I, you know, is the rent not increasing? Well, that's not actually the case. The rent is, is in the instances that we're presenting properties to our clients, the rents are increasing and Darren touched on that just before. You want to make sure if the asking rent is increasing within an area, but the but the yields are going down, then it's just because it is a strong growth market. The faster you can get in, the faster you're gonna benefit from some from some solid equity in that in that property. Yeah. And then another two points which can be sort of worked side by side is the stocker market levels or also even the number of new listings on market uh, in comparison to the days on market. So if you have a look at those numbers and if you see uh, the the stock on market increasing and the days on market decreasing again that becomes uh, obvious that there's a very competitive environment there if you see the stock on market increasing and the and the days on market increasing too you can almost draw an assumption that the market is going to start to correct but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a big correction or a short correction it just means it may be a stagnation and and sometimes it's almost better to hold off while that happens so that everybody you know, they do that knee-jerk reaction. They're like, oh, no, okay, well, maybe I should pull out. No, that's the time to get in because a lot of people will pull out, sentiment will drop from the seller's side, discounting ratios will then release and they'll become more accessible. So those 3% or 2% under what we were talking about earlier then become 4 to 5% and then you can access that market again. And a lot of investors will see that happen and they come back into the market and they'll start to rise again. So that's what we call a correction. It's not a fall in the market's performance. It's a correction in that cycle's growth. Yeah, and we see that quite often in, in markets that we are buying in where you'll see, you know, um, you'll see 10, 15% growth and then for like literally two months, yeah. you'll see that flatline. And It's an and opportunity, guys. It's exactly, it's an opportunity because then it flatlines for a few months and then you just see it spike even more after that as well. So it's just, it is just um, just markets doing doing their thing. Obviously, that's a, you know, a market correcting in, in what we're talking about is not aligned with sort of what, what was t- saying at the beginning of the podcast in terms of Sydney and Melbourne. We think that's going to be longer lasting. It's not going to be a few months. That's going to be, you know, several, several years potentially. But in this instance, when you're looking at these kind of data points, like days on market compared to stock on market and, and listings and so forth, it, it can, it can, you can have a very granular sort of outlook as to, as to how that market is, is going to perform. There was one other thing as well that I wanted to touch on in terms of data points, um, which you guys can you guys can look into as well. If you have a look at number of listings go up within an area, and then you see number of sales go down within an area, that's again probably some alarm bells. Um, you want to find out why are the listings increasing while the sales are decreasing. Seeing listings increase in an area is not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing as long as the days on market is decreasing and as long as the sales are aligned mm. with the amount of listings going on the market. Yep. Cool. So hopefully that um. For all you data nerds, hopefully that that sort of 
got you excited, got you on the edge of your seats. Uh, <laughs> I think we've given you guys sort of quite a bit of information and, and a really good starting point to, to select, select some of the strong markets that will be presenting themselves moving forward. The last thing I wanted to touch on is the cost of construction that is uh, obviously, you know, Cost of materials gone up, wage shortages, timber. I thought I think we were having a we went to Mike Mortlock's seminar today and he was saying yeah. cost of cost of timber's gone up seventy or eighty percent. Let's touch on I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that's gonna affect a lot of the markets, which previously people may not have sort of looked at, how it's gonna have a positive effect on, on those markets. Yeah, well look, we um this is this is actually a very interesting one because typically you know how we would select our markets, we would stay away from uh, one of the one of the points, guys, that we look at is, is saturation, the level of saturation within a market. And saturation comes down to when we have land available, which can be developed on, which will change the data that we're looking at. Uh, so just to give you guys a bit of an understanding of what that means, if we're looking at a vacancy rate of a market sitting at potentially around 0.4, 0.5% today, and we know that that market has got a introduction uh, coming into it where there's potentially large developments creating, you know, 100 houses, 100 units, 100 whatever it is, that data within that area is going to be saturated to a level and push that vacancy rate potentially at that day if the population increase isn't isn't uh, in line with the amount of stock which is required for that market at least, then that data will, or rather that, uh, that vacancy rate will increase from potentially you know, 0.5% up to about 1.5% or whatever it may be, depending on the market size, depending on the population shift expectations over that period as well. So... In the past, this is something that we'd be quite concerned about. The uh, that is, and it's still something that you should definitely be quite concerned about. But in relation to what's happening, is that uh, the construction costs, because they've gone up by you know typically around thirty to thirty-five percent to produce a new home these days. What's happening is uh, we are seeing a lot of internal migration still happening. So there's support of people coming into those markets, which is not necessarily saturating the data so much. But on the back of that, because there's obviously population coming in, that's still growing markets growth. But on the back of it, with those new builds coming forward, once those properties actually get developed and built up, what they're doing is they're setting a new median within those markets. And typically, if that market is being influenced by a bunch of developments which are going into it, which are now costing 30% more on completion, then essentially that's going to help push up that market's price on the median. And that's going to help your valuation of the property in the in the long term as well. But we still need to see that population movement. And if we can assume a good rise of equity through population movements and demand, and, and if that movement's doing 15, 20% growth, as well as the combination of 30% increase of valuation of new developments, then uh, essentially you've got a pretty good combination of uh, catalysts to create some good equity there. Hundred percent. So I think there's there's two things there. One thing is the the new dwellings. If they're thirty percent more, obviously that's going to increase that median and help you pull out the equity. And the other side of it is as well is if a homeowner, an owner occupier, or an investor could buy a brand new house for five hundred thousand or a established home for four fifty, but now that brand new house is going to cost six fifty. It's also mm. going to drive a much bigger demand into the established market as the cost of construction increases so much. So there's two sort of uh, two there's two driving factors of why this is going to have a big impact on the existing dwellings in the area. Existing dwellings, correct? Yeah. Look, we uh, you know our format is not new builds, and uh, more so now than probably ever. 
but uh, it's it's this is what's going to basically bolster a lot of the established properties uh, in those established markets. Established markets are great, obviously, because they're established. Established properties are better because they get influenced by the new builds as well. So we like to stay within those established markets, established properties. We don't like to go to new builds because they take too long to react. And uh, then you've got all these sorts of things to deal with as well, where you're paying 30% over the price. Yeah, 100%. So it's like we, we think new builds are generally, it's it, buying a new house is like buying a new car. As soon as you leave the dealership, you're, it's not going to decrease in value, but it will stagnate for quite a few years after you, you've bought that property. But yeah, that's that's true. But you know, it's, it's not that we are against new build projects. Uh, we do support them in the right climates, in the right markets for the right reasons. But, uh, you know, typically, like I said, we build, we're buying properties at 300000 to $600,000, which is the, the, the good performing economic markets uh, or equity performing economic markets. And uh, you can't typically buy a new build for those prices. 100%. And, and be sure to capitalize off. So that's why, you know, that's why we support that, guys, just to, just to reinforce that we're not against new builds. It's just not our typical format because we see our returns faster and better in other directions. Yeah, I guess for those who are looking for depreciation, if, if, that's, if, that's, a, if that's a strategy of theirs, like, um, you know, we, we don't think depreciation is necessarily a strategy, but it is certainly a benefit. Uh, for those of, those of you that, that need depreciation, then, then maybe that new build is the right strategy to go down for our for our avatar and our clientele, generally depreciation is not something uh, that they want to do. They generally want to increase their income so they can buy more properties. But yeah, it's just I guess that's just the business model that we have. And depreciation is great, um, and especially for a lot of you guys that have uh, leveraged quite close to negative or neutral at the moment. With this interest rate rise, definitely look at getting depreciation schedules into your property. You know, if you're looking at a property which has got, let's say, it's a ten or fifteen uh, ten or fifteen year property. You've got the potential to pull out around seven to nine thousand dollars from that property, which you can then contribute to the repayments and then push your push your negative position into a more positive position. Um, it's not going to help with bank financing because they don't look at that as a contribution of finance from the portfolio, but it'll help your pockets and it'll bring you into a, a positive position. Yeah, hundred percent. And and this wasn't this wasn't planned, but if you guys do need someone for tax appreciation, uh, Mike Mortlock from MCGQS is who who we recommend. He's our uh, one of the, he's, they're the best in the industry. They've been around for, I think, 18 years or something like that in the industry. So you, you guys will find him all over social. So if you guys do need some of a tax depreciation, that's who we, we would recommend. All right, cool. Anything else you want to share, Daz? Look, the media is going to obviously have a big take of what your decision making is. So obviously use it respectfully and wisely. But if you're able to position your, your, your cash into an investment property, which is going to be able to protect itself from the repayments that it requires because of the increased in interest rates which are coming forward, then by all means do that because there's a lot of people that are being fearful in these times. And once you get into those markets, uh, or not necessarily just yet, but there will be people that will be fearful. And uh, if you can get into those markets now and take benefit or, or an opportunity of those markets, then essentially you're going to capitalize from, like we said earlier, getting into those higher yielding markets at the moment because I still do believe that it, they are going to catch really good equity gains going forward. 100%. I agree, mate. You hit the nail on the head. So thanks for coming on. Thank you, mate. Hopefully we're able to add some value to the listeners. Thanks, guys, for listening. And uh, and look, we'll, uh, we'll get, I'll get Daz on however often he wants to come on, maybe once a month, once a fortnight, however however often he does, and uh, and, and get, his, uh, get his wisdom on here. Thanks, guys. It's been a, a pleasure uh, chatting shop to you all. And Bob's, thanks for having me, mate. And, thanks, uh, mate. I'll see you back at the desk. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. 
The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.